Luke chapter 15. Do you know what the first English novel was that was published? I'll give you a hint. It was published in 1719. It's a story of Robinson Crusoe. There's something captivating to us about stories about people being lost. People being cut off from community, being shipwrecked on an island. Having to fend for themselves, make their own way, and try to find their way home or try to be found. And I think deep down there is this, this longing inside of us. That, that we all want to be found. Everybody wants to be found and embraced by that special someone. We want to hear that we belong, whether that's from family or friends. This is, this is something that is common amongst us humans. And it's one of the reasons why these stories of the lost captivate us. Because ultimately, we want to get to that place of saying that we belong. And the sad thing is, this is probably illustrated best in this generation by a book called Reality Isn't What It Used to Be by Walter Anderson. And talking about this generation of kids that have been growing up over the past 10 or 15 years... One of the quotes from one of the kids said this, I belong to the blank generation. I have no beliefs. I belong to no community, no tradition, or anything like that. I'm lost in this vast world. I belong nowhere. I have absolutely no identity. And that, that's a much more profound sense of loss than just being on a remote island, right? That's a, a much deeper sense of loss. And the Bible is a story about being lost in this deeper sense. Losing our identity, losing who we are as God's people. And Luke chapter 15, that's exactly what Jesus is going to be talking about in this chapter. And he's going to give us three parables, and for the sake of time tonight, I'm not going to read all three parables, but I do want to kind of summarize the first two and then spend a little bit more time on the last one. The first parable is about a shepherd's lost sheep. The second is about a woman's lost coin. And then the third one is about a father's lost sons. And each of these parables tell of being lost and the joy of being found. The first we, in the first, we have a story of a shepherd who loses one of his sheep. He wanders off, and the shepherd does something that may seem crazy. He walks away from the 99 sheep to go find the one. He leaves the majority to find the minority. And it's important to understand the context of these verses. Jesus is responding to what some nowadays may term as church people. See, the, the church people are grumbling because Jesus is spending time with people who aren't church people, right? And you can kind of see this as two groups of religious or irreligious. 
The irreligious are the tax collectors, the, the sinners. They are the irreligious. They were the people that didn't get God, that didn't understand God. But then there were the people that got God. They, they understood God. They were the religious people. And we find them grumbling in this passage because Jesus is spending time with sinners and irreligious people. And they think that Jesus should be condemning the sinners and should be pointing out and telling them all of the things that they're doing wrong. And they're upset that he's not. And Jesus knows their heart. He knows their thoughts. So he tells these three parables and, and each one is building upon the other. And he's trying to get to his point, but he's also trying to shock them. Not just so that he would be shocking, but so that their attention would be thrown off just long enough that maybe the message could get through their thick heads. Right? You ever have to do that with your kids sometimes? You have to, you have to jerk them. Yeah, hey, right? You're, just, you're trying to interrupt their thoughts so you can then get them to the right thought. He wants them to be thrown off just long enough. So maybe they'll get the message. And the first message is given here in verse 7 in Luke chapter 15. It's this. Just so I tell you in verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need, who need no repentance. Heaven rejoices, Jesus says, when people confess and repent of their sins. But the arrogant, prideful people say, I don't, I don't have any sin. So therefore, there's no need of repentance. I don't really have any sins I can think of to even repent of. And Jesus says, whoa, be careful. Be careful what you are saying. And then he moves on to the parable of the lost coin of this woman who's searching frantically, trying to find this valuable thing that is missing. And again, she calls together a celebration when she finds the lost coin. And we're told again at the end of verse 9, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. And then in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is a joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus moves into the longer story, this longer parable that he's setting up by these first two stories. He's trying to, again, get them off of their game, so to speak, so that maybe they'll hear for the first time the message of the good news of the gospel. And with the coins and the sheep, it's almost like a story of misplacement. But then this third group, this third parable, is something totally different he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about these two sons that this father and, and they are lost, not because they're misplaced, but because they left. And as we look at this story, we're going to see how both sons leave their father. And some of you are like the younger son here in this room tonight. You've run away from home. You've left but some of you are like the older brother. And the sad thing is we see about this older brother is he refuses ultimately to sit and eat with his father. So think about your life and think about the series that we're doing called Peace on Earth and, and about being a peacemaker and being reconciled with other believers. Do you, 
Do you need this peace and reconciliation first and foremost with God? Because as we've said, you can't give something you don't have. And so as we examine these two brothers, I want you to examine your life tonight. And if we don't live our lives as though we are peace, at peace with God and reconciled with him, then we can't possibly give it to anyone else. And knowing that you have that, that peace and reconciliation, as we talked about in previous weeks, is knowing that you're lost. Seeing that you've gone astray and that, that not merely knowing your sins, but knowing you are a sinner and knowing it's your nature. But that can be difficult. You see, as men and women, we resist this. I mean, we often drive around, guys. We, we don't like to admit when we're lost, do we? I know I don't. I just keep driving. I tell my wife all the time, we're not lost until we're out of gas. At that point, we are then lost, right? But as long as I got gas, we're not lost. I may not know where I'm going, but I'm not lost. And the sad thing is that's the way many of us live our lives. And this parable shows us that there are two categories of lostness. The, the first kind is the one of the brother who leaves and goes off. And, and again, maybe that's you this evening. And there's these plaguing senses of, of guilt for the wrong that you've done. Or, or the self-condemning loops of audios that just kind of keep playing over and over and over in your brain. Some of you feel enslaved to some bad habits that you just hate about yourself, but you can't seem to stop them. For others, it's just a, a despairing self-resignation that you can't change, that this is just who I am. And on the other side of this, we have the older brother. He's religious, but he too is lost from God. As Jesus would call him, he is a person of little faith. There are the religious people that are they're no longer reading God's word. They're, they're no longer praying to God, talking to God, living a life of general faithlessness and joylessness. And we find ourselves being more like the older brother when we think that we have done everything right. We've come to all the church services, we've worshipped in the proper way, we went to all the Bible studies, and yet we find ourselves in a place where we just don't love people, and we don't love God. The French have a word for this. My French teacher, Miss Wise, would be so impressed with me right now. It's called ennui. Ennui. And it literally means annoyance, which I think what I was to my French teacher for three years. But it's come to mean over time, listen to this, a free-floating dissatisfaction and a boredom that sets in upon the soul. And it makes life tasteless. And the typical way that we fight on we is by turning the volume up on life, right? We, we turn to entertainment and experiences. And boy, us as Americans, we are king at this, right? Matter of fact, what do we have right now? We have an experience economy, right? We, we are trying to distract ourselves from this sense of despair. 
this life that is tasteless. So we're constantly looking for some new thrill, a new excitement, a new trip, a new whatever, because we want to get over this ennui that we feel in our lives, this depression of the soul. And we're looking for some kind of adventure, some kind of entertainment to distract us long enough so that we don't notice how we feel. So we go from concert to concert. We're chasing those feelings, those emotions, and try to feel as though we are alive. It looks different in all of us. We're we're chasing after something that will satisfy our souls. It may be music. It may be books. It may be movie. It may be theology subjects. Like we're just chasing after all these things to try to give us a sense of meaning. But it's never as good as the last experience or the first experience that we had. And we spend our lives chasing after these things. And today, if you are feeling lost, if you're fearful of returning to God, I have some good news for you. And more to the point, Jesus has some really good news for you. Because Jesus is going to show us in this last parable that God is a welcoming father. You see, the problem for most of us is we don't see God as Father. If we're honest, we see God as an employer. What I mean by that is religious people view themselves as being on the inside of God's attitude and agenda. They think they know what God is up to and doing. Outsiders, admittedly, are just completely clueless. They don't know what God's doing and they don't know what he's about. But see, the religious people thought that God was like a great employer. You do the work exactly the way he wants it, in exactly the order he wants it, and you get to keep your job. The irreligious thought that God was a harsh employer, so they quit. They left. Both the religious and the irreligious thought about God the same way. They all view him as an employer in the story. If you work hard, you get paid. They both thought that they could calculate God's attitude somehow towards them by by adding up all of their good works, all of the right observances, all of the whatever, and they could please him, at least for the moment. But if you've been lazy, or you failed to follow the rules, or you failed to do everything in the exact right order that he calls you to do it, then God's pointing you to the door and telling you to leave until you can shape up. And see, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this, that this is what's going on in the Pharisees' heads. They're not seeing God as a father. They're seeing God as an employer. And they're thinking to themselves, we've followed all the rules. We've read the Old Testament. We've memorized most of it. We live it out every day. We have no sin because we've hedged around what you said was sin so much that we couldn't possibly be sinners. And God should be happy with us because we're good employees, because we've done what he wants. And then this man named Jesus comes along and he starts spending all of his time with the bad employees. And that doesn't make any sense. And they feel the need to correct Jesus. 
and say, listen, I don't know if you notice this, Jesus, but you're spending time with the wrong people. We're the right people. We're the righteous people. Those are the bad employees. We're the good employees. We always show up. We always come to work. We always do what we're told. We're the ones that deserve your attention, right? Because we're sinless. We don't need repentance. We know they need it, those irreligious people, but we don't. So spend time with us. And this is what Jesus tells them that shocks them, or he hopes will shock them, and I hope it will shock you tonight. I hope it gets through to you because as Americans in a Western culture, we can miss some significant points to the story that Jesus is talking about. First, let's look at the story of the younger son, verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So the first thing we see about this young man is this request that, that might sound simple and maybe even reasonable to, to people in America. He says, Father, just give me my share of the inheritance, right? And much like nowadays, kids, they will come up to their father and say, you know, I, I want some of my money. I want to invest it. I want to do this. I want to kind of branch out on my own. Why don't you go ahead and give me some of my inheritance so I can, I can do that? But you got to understand, for someone to do that in the Middle East... It would have been shocking to say the least. For, for the son to make the request for it to be divided up was unheard of. A biblical scholar named Kenneth Ballin, he went around the Middle East asking different people in the, in, in the areas of the Middle East, have you ever heard of this? Have you ever seen this kind of request being made in your history? And they all said, never. And he asked, well, could anyone ever make such a request? And they all said, it would have been impossible. And he said, well, I understand it's impossible, but what would have happened if someone would have made that request in your culture? To which they replied, the father would have beat him, of course. Why? Because asking for inheritance in this Middle Eastern culture means the son wanted the father to die. He's not just asking for money. He's telling the father, I want you dead. I want you out of my life. I want you gone. What might appear in the English and reading it in our Western culture as a simple request of just a spoiled kid wanting some money meant something far different in an honor and shame culture. All too well what the son was doing he had openly and publicly cursed his father humiliated him and shamed him and insulted him 
And again, in an honor and a shame culture, honor was everything. And shame meant you were nothing. So this is why Jesus told it, because he, he wanted to shock the Pharisees. Again, don't forget the context of religious people who thought they had no sin, who had no need of repentance. He's trying to shock them, trying to rattle them to get through to them. And guys, listen, Jesus, he, he knew that most of us, we, we don't understand the severity of sin. Most of us, to, to most of us, sin is just this mistake we make every once in a while. But what Jesus is trying to teach us is that sin is wishing that God were dead. Sin is the way that we curse God by our actions. And like the sons, sin is leaving God. And we're lost just like him. But we are lost only because we have left. But look at the father's response. He's been insulted. He's been humiliated. He's been embarrassed. And basically, he's been told by his son, I want you to die. But what does he do? Again, this would have been shocking. He divided his property between them. He gives him his share, his entire share of his inheritance. Again, it's shocking that, to think that the son would ask, but it's even more shocking that the father would respond this way. Because as that one scholar pointed out, normally a father would have just beat him. Maybe to the point of burying him after he was done, right? That's the typical Middle Eastern response at this time. And yet that's not what we see the father doing. We don't see the father condemning him or humiliating him. He simply divides the money, divides the estate. And without a hint of retaliation, gives him exactly what he asked for. See, I think the father knows that if he's going to have this son, he must have him for the right reason. The son must come to the place that he loves the father. And see, this again reminds us of the mystery of sin. People are in conflict because of sin. And sin has a mystery to it. How, how can a son leave such a home, right? I mean, this is not a dysfunctional home. This is a home where the son is cared for every day, where every day he eats with his father. And the father makes everything available. And he still says to him, I wish you were dead, dad. So I can take my money and I can run. And Jesus goes on to tell us how he squanders his money. He falls on Hard times, and he finds himself in a place where he's feeding pigs, longing to just be able to eat what the pigs are eating. This is how desperate the son gets. Again, understanding a Jewish culture, there's a whole other layer there of working with pigs. But again here in verse 18 through 19, we might be deceived by the appearance of what's going on. In verse 18, it says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now that sounds good, right? Sounds like maybe he's come to his senses. He's gotten to a place where he's at rock bottom. And he wants to go back. But surprisingly enough, the son is mimicking the words of a very wicked and manipulative man in the Bible. If you go back to Exodus 10, he's mirroring the words of Pharaoh. 
who cries out after the plagues were sent out to Egypt. He, he cries out to Moses and he says, I have sinned against the Lord and against you. But if you go back and read that story, you know that Pharaoh was actually just playing for time until he could get back at Moses. He wasn't genuine in his request. He's not truly repentant of his behavior. He's not truly repented of his sin. He just realizes his circumstances and he makes this mathematical equation the same way the son does that it would be better for me if I were to be with my father. And so if I have to eat a little crow and go back to him, that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back. Why? Because again, he sees the father as an employer. He makes this plan to go back to the farm, but he doesn't want to return to his father. He doesn't want to be his son. He's going back to be what? An employee. I'm going to go back and be a servant. It's not about I love my father. I miss my father. I want to be with my father. It's because he's looked around his life and he's like, life's in the dumps right now. And you know, when I was with my father, it was better. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I want to go back and be with my father, not because I love my father, not because I care about my father, but because I think my quality of life will be better. And guys, I see this all the time. That's exactly why a lot of people come back to church. They're not coming back to a loving father. They're not coming back because they remember well, they're coming back because they remember that life was better when they were there. When I, when I did these things that I was supposed to do, my, my overall quality of life was, was good. I'm not coming back because I've realized I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I'm making a mathematical equation and saying, this would be better for me. Same way the sun is. So many people leave the church and come back to the church not because of the love of the Father and the love that he has for them. But because selfishly they think, this will make my life better. I'll get on some meal trains. I'll get some friends. Right? Not, I love the Father. And maybe that's where some of you are this evening. You see how the Son, do you see how the Son is, is thinking of the Father as an employer again? His mindset hasn't changed. He wants to return not as a son, but as an employee. And, and I mean, let's be honest, in one sense, he is right. I mean, he's no longer worthy to be called a son in this culture. He's publicly disgraced his father. He's humiliated him. He's basically said, I want you dead. Give me my money so I can go and do what I want to do. And he goes out and he lives recklessly and he blows all of his money. So in one sense, he's right. The formal place that he had, he squandered it. But he thinks he can still repay it. See, the son seems to have calculated his losses, and now he's put together this good business plan to recoup what he's lost. Yet he didn't calculate one thing into his equation. He never once considered his father's response. He's looking at his situation. He sees his life circumstances. And he's saying it would be better if I go back. I'm going to work hard. Maybe I can still make something of my life. But look at the father's response. Just as shocking as asking. And the request that the son makes 
just as shocking as the father giving him the share of inheritance, Jesus says another shocking thing in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Jesus is helping us to understand those first two parables, what it means to be lost and then to be found. He starts out with physical objects because that's easy for us to understand, right? A a, a lost sheep, a lost coin. Both things in this culture which had high value. If you're a farmer, that sheep meant a lot. If you're a poor woman, this coin meant a lot. But the rejoicing that he was talking about in those two parables is about the rejoicing that happens when a sinner recognizes their sin and is restored to their father. That's the rejoicing Jesus is trying to teach us about. But let me ask you, do you would you expect this? Did you expect the father knowing, knowing what, the son had basically done wanting him dead. Do you expect that this is how the father would, would respond? Is this the way your father would have responded to you? Is this the way that you as a father have responded to some of your children? After they're insulting you and humiliating you in public? I mean, when you lose your wallet, I expect you to go searching for it. When you lose your car, I expect you to go looking for it. But when your son steals your wallet, totals your car in a drunken spree, we don't expect you to run out and meet him and kiss him and welcome him home and say, let's have a party. And Jesus, he tells a story to to hook us because he knows what we would expect. He, He knows that whenever and wherever this story is told, whether it is in their time or in the 21st century, we all expect to God to look at our performance and degrade us and respond in kind. And it's justice we expect, not mercy. It's wages we expect, not grace. And Jesus says, wrong. You don't know the Father at all. So he gives us the unexpected in the story. Instead of the community catching and condemning the boy before he gets home, the father runs to greet him while he's still on his way. Instead of a harsh reprimand, how many times have I told you so? He greets him with a kiss. Instead of, well, you know, you've made your bed, now you're going to lie in it, the father dresses him in the best robe, a sign of full acceptance. And he puts a ring on his finger, a sign the father trusts him in a remarkable way. He puts shoes on his feet as a sign of being a son and not a slave. And he calls for a feast of rejoicing, a sign of full reinstatement into the family and the community. Instead of condemning the son, the father runs to greet him. He he seals his forgiveness with a lavish celebration. That's how God loves the lost. That's the celebration that happens every time a sinner confesses their sin and repents. 
Because every time you sin, this isn't just about lost in terms of Christian versus non-Christian. But every time you sin, you're saying, God, I wish you were dead. And every time you confess and repent of that sin, you're turning back and saying, God, I need you. And the Father welcomes you back. This is the picture that he wants us to understand of why confession and repentance every day of our life is so important. See, we religious people, we, we like to look at this story and think this is just about lost people, unsaved people. But the reality is this, this is about sinners. And sinners are religious and irreligious. Christian and non-Christian. The only difference is that sinners that confess their sin and repent of it are welcomed by the Father. But I told you the story is about two lost sons. So let's look real quickly at the second son. Starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house. In verse 25. He, he heard music and dancing. And he, he called one of the servants and, said, and asked. What, the, what do these things mean? And he said to him. Your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fatted calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So here we have this older brother. Again, if we're thinking about terms of religious and irreligious, this is more of a religious son. This is more of the Pharisee. This is the son who stayed home, who honored his father. He honored his community. He came to church every time he was supposed to. He read his Bible. He's the quintessential religious person that Jesus is addressing. And he, in his mind, he is what? The good son. So when he comes home and he hears this party going on, and he asks his servant, what in the world is happening? The servant says, your brother has come home. He was lost, and now he's found. And your father's celebrating. He's throwing this huge party. To which the religious son, the son who thinks he has no sin, the son who thinks he's perfectly good and doing everything the father wants him to do, does what? Does he rejoice and say, oh, my brother's come home. He was lost and now he's found. This is awesome. No, he gets angry. He's angry that the, the father is throwing this party for his brother. And again, this isn't just a farm party, right? This is, the father is throwing a party. He's inviting neighbors, his extended family, and asking them, come celebrate. My son that was lost, he's now back. He's now found. And it's a community affair, and there's people there. And no doubtly, the, the servant goes in and tells the father, hey, the son is here, but man, he's outside, and he's angry. He's upset. Now, these kind of events, the elder son, it's, it's kind of a semi-ceremonial thing. He would be with the father. He, he should be beside the father in this communal gathering in the village. And he, he, he would be sharing in the celebration. And yet, he's on the outside. And the servant tells the father, he, he's outside. And listen, he's angry. <laughs> he, he's upset. And the father had every right to say, well, just, you know, he'll come in when he's ready. Just got to let him calm down. Just, just, just ignore him. Let him pout. Eventually, he'll come to his senses. Now, for the second time in the story, we see the father pursuing 
a son. He goes outside and he speaks to him. See, the prodigal son was doubtful of the father's love, and the older son is downright antagonistic. In verse 29, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I punched the clock, put in my time. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. You never paid me that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours come, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fat calf for him. Right? The son is murmuring and complaining and wallowing in self-pity. Do you see what the second son is doing? He's seeing himself as an employee. I showed up to work. I did everything you wanted me to do. I don't understand why these other people are getting to do what I want to do. These people are much worse than I am. He blew all of his money on prostitutes. Dad, come on. Why in the world are you doing this for him? I see this all the time in our context, in our culture, and in our church. People who, who have sat in church for a long time, they get upset because younger people, because people that, 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 that you know, seem more sinful, God is using them to do things. And they're jealous. Why don't I get to teach? Why don't I get to lead? These are horrible people. These people are also people who are sinners who confess and repent. And part of the reason you know their sin is because they're willing to be open and honest and transparent with you. And you don't. You sit there like this older brother and you're angry because you think, I've showed up, I've put in my time. God should use me. I've done all the things. All the things but confess and repent of your sin. And you wonder why God doesn't use you. And what do we do? We get angry. But see, most religious people, they're smart enough to know, I'm not, I'm not supposed to get angry with God. So instead, they get angry at God's representatives. And maybe that's why you left the last church you were in. Because you got angry at God's representatives because they didn't let you play. Or you thought they didn't let you play. But in reality, if you believe that God is sovereign... God didn't let you play. And you should really take your anger out with him in the same way that we see the older brother taking out his anger with his father. You see, Jesus is telling the story so that we will understand God the Father. So when we read this parable about these two lost sons, Jesus is trying to help us understand and see we're one of the sons and that God is the Father. Some of us have ran, some of us have not. Both of us are lost. Some of us have ran and have ran off in our sinfulness, but some of us have stayed and, and, and have surrendered our souls to, to pride and self-sufficiency. The elder son accuses his father of being a fool. Worse, he accuses the father of neglecting to pay him what he owes him. You never gave me a goat before. You never let me have a party with my friends. See, I deserve that. I worked for that. What has he ever done? Nothing but blow your money and embarrass and humiliate you. And you're paying him? <laughs> That's not right. He thinks the father's cheated him. All these years I've been slaving away 
never disobeying your orders. And you never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. You stupid old man. You're a cheat. You're a taskmaster. That's what the older brother is saying. And again, I want you to understand this is a public accusation because this is a communal party, right? And the father steps outside. Guess what's right behind him? The party's still there. And here's this older son just dressing him down. You're a horrible father. You're unfair. And here again, we have this father whose name and reputation is embarrassed and humiliated. Much the same way the younger brother did. The older brother, the older son's rejection shows another aspect of our hearts that we don't, we don't want anyone to offer hugs and kisses to those who have done wrong. No robe or sandals for their feet or a, a new gold ring. We don't want to celebrate them, others that have done wrong. We just want justice, not mercy. We want payback. Somebody has to pay restitution. But again, guys, this is what is so shocking about this story. How does the father respond? Verse 31. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, the older brother just didn't get it. The father's saying, you, you've had everything your whole life. But, but you didn't see me as a father. You saw me as an employer. You didn't understand and appreciate that you weren't just coming to punch a clock. See, older brother, you, you were getting to spend time with me. And to be with me. See, the father's response again, he, he could have retaliated. He could have brought up all the times the elder brother didn't do the right thing. We all know the old elder brother slept in sometimes, right? He, he lost a sheep or two, right? He, there are things he didn't do perfectly right. But he's human. And, and the father could have brought up all of those times. He could have turned that retaliation right back around on him, but that's not what he did. We see this loving father drawing him in, trying to say, listen, come to the celebration. Come to a place of confession and repentance and come back and be reconciled with the family. He seeks to draw him back into the celebration. Both of these sons are lost in their sin and their rejection of the father. One gives himself over to his passions. The other one gives himself over to pride. And yet the father's love for both is unquenchable. It doesn't matter what's hurled at the father. It, it, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't affect the love and the mercy and the grace that he shows back to his sons. We don't know how great the father's love is for us. We don't know how much he's welcoming us back and how ready and willing and eager he is to forgive us with no strings attached. If we confess our sins, if we repent of that sin and turn to him and ask to save us, he is a welcoming father. I want to close by talking about the other son in this story. You see, there's a third son. 
And I know you might be a little confused and say, wait a minute, I've been reading while you're talking, and it only talks about two. So who's this third son? Well, the third son is the storyteller. The third son is Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus has a special insight into the Father because he, as his son, he firsthand better knows the Father better than anyone else. He knows God the Father better than anyone that's ever walked on this earth. And he knows more than anybody just how welcoming this Father is. Why is his Father so willing and eager to welcome lost sons? It's because of what Jesus, his only begotten Son, who lived a perfect life, did. And paid the penalty for all of the wrongs that we have committed. So Jesus knew of this Father's unquenchable love because he sent his Son to die in our place. To bear the pain and disrespect and brutality of our sin upon him. Because of the, sp- the perfect son, our, our heavenly father is waiting for his sons to return to him. So that he might bless you and forgive you and accept you and celebrate you. And we don't have to look up to heaven to find that this is true. I mean, in, in telling us the story Having the welcoming father, Jesus is pointing to himself and and reaffirming, come to me, I am the way to the father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. A few days or months later, Jesus is teaching again and he said, the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost in Luke 19.10. And a week later, he proved his love by giving his life ransom as a payment for our sins. For the sons and daughters of this world, justice has been done. There was payback. Three days later, for the religious and the irreligious, for the offender and the offended, the father would raise Jesus from the dead and say, it is paid back. It's paid in full. Welcome in. Welcome in. If you've tasted that forgiveness from the Father in heaven, then you can share that forgiveness with others lavishly. But some of you can't go and be reconciled with people. You can't forgive others because you've never really experienced the forgiveness I'm talking about. You still think you're a good employee. And you've missed how your pride and self-sufficiency has blinded you from your need for a Savior. And some of you this evening, maybe for the first time out of 40 years of church life, need to accept Christ. You need to confess, I am a sinner, not a good employee. I'm lost. I've never experienced the love of the Father the way Jesus is talking about it. And give your life to Jesus. And once you've experienced that forgiveness and you understand just how much you've been forgiven, it it enables you to go out and be reconciled and to forgive others. You have a heavenly father who loves you beyond words. He sent his son to seek after you to pay your debts and open up a way to everlasting forgiveness and reconciliation. 
All he asks is that today you run into his arms without hesitation. To turn around and open up your heart and your arms to those who need your forgiveness. Have you experienced this forgiveness that I'm talking about? Do you know the welcoming father that Jesus is describing? If you do, it will change your life. Not not only your relationship with him, but your relationship with your family and with your friends. I hope and I pray tonight that you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to make a way for us, God, when there was no way. There, There was no amount of work we could ever do to be that good employer or employee, Lord. Father, we are lost. And what we desperately need tonight is to be found. And Lord, whether that's for the first time tonight, and I pray for those who are here that don't know you, that, that tonight they would experience that feeling of belonging and knowing that they are found by simply admitting their sin and asking you to save them. Lord, but also for those of us who have known that experience, but because of our sin, we've continued to walk away from you. We've continued to say we wish you were dead. Lord, that we too would confess and repent of our sin and turn back to you, our welcoming Father. Lord, and as this parable reminds us, you you are standing, waiting, watching, eager for us, Lord, so that there might be a celebration in heaven tonight like no other. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We we spend this time, this season, representing the, the incarnation of when Jesus came into flesh, Lord. And without him, we would still be lost. So we thank you and we praise you for that. Lord, I, I pray that you would bless also our time of fellowship tonight after the service and bless the food and those who have prepared it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.